0: And she was afraid to leave because of what had happened to her, witnessing the powerful effects of the cycle of violence on victims.
1: Welcome to the Real Talk 238 podcast with your host, Denise Lee, a licensed professional counselor and nationally board certified counselor in the state of Alabama. The focus of the Real Talk 238 podcast is to have real conversations concerning taboo topics that people in the church may find themselves struggling with or feel they may not be able to talk about. The topics discussed on the Real Talk 238 podcast are intended strictly for informational and educational purposes only. These topics are not a substitute nor does it replace professional medical, psychiatric, psychological, or mental health advice, nor is it a substitute for a diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or a qualified licensed mental health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or mental health disorder. right now. Let's get started.
2: Hey everyone, I just wanted to come on and say thank you for listening to the podcast. As you know, sometimes we have very controversial or taboo topics on the podcast. After all, this is what The Real Talk 238 is all about. Today, I am putting a trigger warning on this particular episode because it does not need to be heard around young children. This is a very serious topic, and if you are in a situation of domestic violence, because this is what this episode is about, then please do not listen to this around young children. In this episode, I interviewed Tim Bozzelli. He's a therapist from Missouri, and we talked about domestic violence. One of the things that people do not realize is that domestic violence is almost a hidden epidemic, meaning we do know it's out there and we know it exists, but how much of it is reported, especially when it comes to the church? So just to put some little insight on it, more than one in three women and more than one in four men will experience some type of physical violence by a partner. Nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the U.S. And during one year, this adds up to more than 10 million women and men. Notice I said men in this as well. One in four women and one in seven men have experienced severe physical violence by an intimate partner during their lifetime. This is how serious it is. An intimate partner violence, or aka domestic violence, accounts for about 15% of all violent crimes. On a typical day, there are more than 20,000 phone calls placed to a domestic violence hotline, and worldwide, almost one-third of women between the ages of 15 to 49, that's about 27%, have been in a relationship and have experienced some type of domestic violence. So in most cases of domestic violence are never reported to the police. Just think about that for a minute. And in domestic violence, homicides happen. Women are six times more likely to be killed when a gun is in the house. Six more times in a situation of domestic violence when a gun is there. One in 15 children are exposed to domestic violence each year because of intimate partner violence. That's about 90% of these kids who witness their parent, one of their parents being abused. Then they end up growing up with emotional issues because they've been exposed to domestic violence. As far as globally goes, about 38% of all murders of women are committed by an intimate partner. And women with disabilities have a 40% greater risk of domestic violence than a woman without disabilities. If you're still in high school, one in five female high school students reports being some type of physical or sexual violence by a dating partner. And domestic violence, it's a $3.6 trillion problem for the U.S. population. And every day, more than three women and one man is murdered by their partner of domestic violence. This is why we are having this conversation today on the podcast, because it is a serious conversation that needs to be addressed. And let's just even put this into a little bit more perspective here, because primarily most of my audience is faith-based. You know, they attend some type of church. If you've been listening for a long time, then you know that I had done a research project. And I was looking at the reasons why for trauma and suicide awareness and suicide prevention. But part of that study was I had to collect some data. And so I asked some very personal questions to all of my participants in the study. Now, 100% of the participants in the study were part of ministry. Okay, I can't tell you names, but let me just put in reality. So the question was, in the last five years, or the last time you've served in ministry, if longer than five years, have you ever experienced one of the following? There was different things like grief and loss, sickness, emotional or eating issues, financial. But here's the one I want to bring in to really give you a reality on this thing. As far as have they, in the last five years, have they experienced some type of abuse? Okay, and this could be either being a perpetrator or a victim. 14.5% of my participants had experienced some type of abuse. And then as far as knowing other people that were abused also in ministry, 14.6%, which is pretty scary if you think about it. This is in the church, and this is involved in ministry let me just be clear on this people in ministry don't talk about this stuff this is why i did this research project why are people experiencing suicides and why are people having trauma responses and reactions well this is one of those very key things again i hope this will bring some awareness there is a trigger warning please do not listen to this around young children If you know somebody who is a victim of domestic violence, please share this episode with them. And then lastly, have this number on hand because you never know who might need it. It's the number to the National Domestic Violence Hotline. It is 1-800-799-7233. Again, that number is 1-800-799-7233. And you can also text the word S-T-A-R-T, that's the word start, to 88788. Again, you can text somebody at 88788 using the word start, S-T-A-R-T. I hope this episode will be helpful and that it will be beneficial. All right, everybody, have a great day. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's podcast of The Real Talk 238. My name is Denise Lee, and I am your host. Today, I am going to be talking to Tim Bazelli. He is from Troy, Missouri. He's a therapist and a preacher. He's married to Megan. They've been married for eight years. They have two children and two chihuahuas. He's been in church since he's been about eight years old. He attends Light UPCI in O'Fallon, Missouri. The way he serves in ministry, he's an evangelist, and he also owns a private practice with other apostolic counselors. He's been in ministry for about 25 years. He describes himself as being passionate about helping facilitate positive change in the lives of individuals. He's very driven, motivated, hard worker, enjoys counseling, ministering in the area of emotional and spiritual healing. And a fun fact about Tim is that he loves the outdoors. He's an avid deer hunter. And yes, I see the, the deer heads on the wall. How are you today, Tim?
0: I'm doing quite well. Thank you, Sister Denise. How long have you been a therapist? I got my provisional license in 2005. And then I got my licensed, complete license in 2007. But I've been doing it full time since 2005 to the present. So our listeners know, because it varies from state to state, a
2: provisional license there is kind of like here where it's an associate license counselor, just means that you have to be under supervision.
0: That's correct. For 3,000 hours or a two-year process of working full-time.
2: Yes, I say that's the longest 3,000 hours of my
0: life, I think. It's <laughs> long, it is a long one. They give, <laughs> us what? they give us four, at least in Missouri, they give you about four and a half years to complete it. Yeah. I'm not sure
2: about Alabama, how long they give you, if they have a time frame on that. I just know that you have to be fully licensed. You have to pass the, the NCE, which is the National Board of Certified Examiners, which is the hardest test in the whole wide world, I think.
0: Yes, I, I agree. It's the same thing in Missouri. You have to pass the NCE to get your license. Yes. And it is a difficult test, to say the least. To say the least, yes. I took mine in 2005, but it was hard then too. Let me tell you. Yeah, I took it in
2: 2016. No, I'm sorry, 19, and it was terrible. Sure. I think it was written in a different language, but it looked like English.
0: Yeah, they tell you that usually there's about 40 questions that are experimental that they use for future tests, and I was told when I took mine, if you don't understand the question, move on it may be an experimental question. Right. But yeah, they do norm about 40 questions that are experimental on that test that they don't even really use to grade. <laughs>
2: right. So you don't know which ones and you're stressed.
0: Yeah, oh. exactly.
2: Exactly. <laughs> you had reached out to me about coming on the podcast because you work with domestic violence. Yes. I was just curious, like, what got your interest in working with domestic violence?
0: You know, I worked in uh, 2007. I got my license to be professional counselor, got my LPC. And at that time, when I finished supervisory hours, I kind of tried to find what my niche was. And it ended up being mental health counseling in day clinics, which were like day hospitals. It wasn't an inpatient hospital. It was like a day hospital where I did intensive outpatient treatment and did day groups. Yeah. And I found myself working at, at the time, SSM hospital in Wentzville, Missouri. And I just remember I had a, you know, a victim at that time who actually, that I worked with that had her head, a part of it was caved in And I asked her what happened, and she had said that her husband got mad at her and threw a motorcycle helmet at her head and hit her head and actually cracked and crushed a portion of her skull. I just remember working with that individual and doing all that I could to help her. Economically, she didn't have the money to leave. She wanted to, but could not, and was stuck in the cycle of violence with an abusive perpetrator. And I remember that I did all I could do to help her, but she still did not break away from that abusive cycle from her husband. I wasn't advocating divorce. I just wanted her to be safe. And she was afraid to leave because of what had happened to her, witnessing the powerful effects of the cycle of violence on victims and seeing that in all therapy, if you look at addictions and you look at cycles and you look at different types of stages people go through, the hardest cycle to help somebody break is what we call the cycle of violence. It was very difficult to help victims break the cycle and sometimes even become safe. And when I saw how powerful that cycle of violence was for her, it just really tugged at my heart. And I worked with several victims of domestic violence. And then eventually what happened is I actually wanted to go to the other side and work with the perpetrators to see if I could help break the cycle on that end of it versus the victims.
2: When you say the cycle of violence, what is exactly does that mean? Because not everybody knows what the cycle of
0: violence means? Yeah, it's a great question. You know in domestic violence, we look at the cycle of violence as different stages that people can go through. Basically, there's a storming stage that just signifies an act of violence in which maybe the person gets screamed at, yelled at, verbally abused, or physically abused, but some kind of an aggressive act to cause harm to the victim. Most cases, it is men perpetrating against women. And what happens is, if something bad happens, there's a violent act. And then after that, there might be a stage in which there are apologies, A stage of remorse where the perpetrator will come back and really make the victim believe that he's not going to do it again. He might get her flowers. He might get her gift. He might say to her, I'll never do it again. And they're very good at manipulating and making the victim believe they'll never do it again you have the storming stage and then you've got a stage of remorse where they apologize. They do act of kindness. And then you have a peaceful stage in the cycle of violence where peace might occur for a month, two weeks, six months. And then the victim might think things are getting back to normal. And then all of a sudden it goes right back into the storming stage where there's an act of violence again, without the cycle being broken. It just repeats itself storming stage remorse stage, and then peaceful stage.
2: Is the statistics correct on it? Like it takes about, I don't know, six to 12 times before somebody can break
0: the cycle of violence, like get out of this situation? Yeah, I haven't seen that stat recently, but that does make sense. You know, six to 12 times, if they even break, you know, the cycle, yes, it can take repeated patterns. There's several reasons for that. I can talk about some of those reasons why it's difficult for victims to break the cycle.
2: Yeah, I think that's important because I know some of it has to do with financial, some of it has to do with economic.
0: So with the perpetrators of domestic violence, there's different forms of abuse. And you just mentioned there's economic abuse, there's physical abuse, there's verbal and psychological abuse. You know, there can be sexual abuse when the spouse may force that person to be intimate with them. And that's abuse, of course, as well. But looking at the perpetrator, understand domestic violence, it's all about power and control. So a lot of times, a a very controlling, manipulative perpetrator will set the stage to have an economic advantage over the victim to where they might be the main breadwinner and the spouse may not provide any money. Many of the reasons why they stay in that cycle is, number one, economics. A lot of the time, the perpetrator has more money. Number two, the perpetrators are very good at psychological abuse, of making the victim believe through physical or verbal abuse that they can never do any better, that they can never find anybody else, that they have to be with them forever, no matter what the circumstance is, because they're so believable and manipulative. And it doesn't have to only be with people that are married. It could be somebody courting and working on getting married. Maybe they're dating. You can get a domestic violence relationship when a person's dating someone and have similar patterns. The cycle is the toughest to break, I think, because of economic and then also the repeated patterns of emotional and psychological abuse in which the victim begins to really believe the lies and believe that they cannot do any better. So they end up staying in that cycle. And you're right. I, I believe that stat would be accurate. It makes sense to me. But it takes at least six to 12 times. For them to even consider leaving.
2: The other thing too, that I often think about as well is if there's kids involved and trying to leave with your kids and particularly if it's a woman trying to get away from like a husband or maybe a partner, male partner who's threatening to kill her or kill the kids, those type of things as well. Yes. In your experience, like how often are you able to help? And of course it takes a mindset change for that to happen. They've got to get to that place But how often have you seen where the victim was able to get away from the perpetrator?
0: I've helped several victims while they were still with the perpetrator. I have had victims come to me for counseling who have actually already broke the cycle. Well, not not broke the cycle, but have gotten away from the person because of a violent act. Let's say the perpetrator, if they were arrested or went to jail. So I have had people in safe places counsel with me. But a lot of the time that that occurred because of of the legal system, maybe the perpetrator was in jail and then they were getting rehabilitation while, while their spouse was in prison and working on themselves. I'm trying to think if I've actually been in a case where I've had a victim I've had victims flee to get to safe places like domestic violence shelters several times, or if I'm talking to someone and I believe they're a threat to be harmed, where I've had to help them contact domestic shelters to go to a confidential place of safety until they can figure out how they were going to remain safe with themselves and their children, if there was children. How often is it the flip situation? Maybe it's the male that's the victim. Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I, and I think that should be discussed in domestic violence. I ran better intervention programs for perpetrators of domestic violence of for men and women. I have found that domestic violence is not only the man committing violence against the woman, but I have found that in this day and age, a lot of times they'll do a dual charge where you'll have a violent man. And what I've seen is women that are victims of domestic violence that fight back and become perpetrators. My experience of women who are actually domestically violent have been in counseling them. They have been victims of domestic violence who have become perpetrators out of defense to protect themselves.
2: Let me get that straight. So they're trying to protect themselves and then they're, if the police are called in then they're charged with domestic
0: violence as well because they were trying to to protect themselves? So a lot of times if you have violence in a relationship and you have a a man being violent to the woman, most of the time they're going to arrest the man. But if there's, let's say the police go to someone's house and they both have bloody noses or they can tell there's been violence on both ends, then I have seen where they will give a charge to both, the man and the woman both and make them go to better to, to intervention training, and they'll charge them both.
2: All right. How much, as far as domestic violence go, is it a problem in the church? Because that's one of those things is not hardly talked about. I know there is one church I'm very familiar with that is in another state. And uh, I know a couple of people that were in really bad situations of domestic violence in that church. And sadly, the, the pastor of the church and the assistant pastor just kind of turn their head and let And just basically ignored it.
0: Denise, I think that's really one of the precipitating factors and reasons why I thank you for having these types of podcasts. I've seen similar situations where maybe a woman seeking counseling and her husband grabbed her by the throat when he was mad at her. And then that woman would continue to do counseling with a minister or maybe even a counselor that's not trained to domestic violence. I think it's important to know that. If a victim, if there's a person in a relationship who has been in domestic violence and there's a perpetrator, the statistics in domestic violence say if a perpetrator has not gone through a intervention program, then a married couple should not get couples counseling because it makes the victim that much more unsafe because the perpetrator could use the counseling against the victim to continue to abuse them. So a lot of domestic violence research is the feminist movement and domestic violence better intervention programs and training really was made so that the perpetrators could be better found out and that counselors could be mandated reporters. And it's all about keeping the victims safe. So domestic violence research says that couples counseling can only occur if there's been domestic violence. So that means if someone grabs someone's throat, that's a lethal means of aggression. Or if they grab a knife or their throat, or they push them down or punch them, any type of act of domestic violence of that nature, the perpetrator should get at least 12 to 20 weeks of rehabilitation domestic violence. If the perpetrator graduates from that successfully and the domestic violence facilitator signs off on it, then they're able to get counseling and work on their marriage. But a lot of times this gets missed, I think, in the church. If if a woman gets her throat grabbed, well, the husband needs to get rehabilitative domestic violence training to work on his domestic violence issues. Because it's more than it's more than anger management. Anger, that plays a big role in violence but domestic violence goes deeper than that. It's truly about power and control and that perpetrator keeping that victim under his thumb, maybe because he has self-esteem issues or gets some kind of unhealthy payback of controlling that other person. But unless they're rehabilitated successfully, counseling should never occur. It puts the victim in more danger of it repeating again and again.
2: So couples counseling, I just want to make sure I'm hearing this right because I'm honestly not trained in domestic violence. I don't work with couples that are involved in domestic violence. So I could see why you're saying that it's important to see somebody who is trained to work with domestic violence. I could definitely see that. Yes, But I did not realize that if it's a couple and one one of the partners is is the perpetrator of domestic violence, that there shouldn't be couples counseling. And I could see why, like you said, because now I've, I've worked with couples before and it does, it gets pretty intimate in the, the conversations in those sessions, but I could see how it could be used against the victim.
0: Yes, if that perpetrator has not worked on his domestic violence issues, then absolutely he'll, he can take that important information that's meant to help the couple and use it against the victim to further feed his need to manipulate and control the victim, which the statistics say it puts the victim in that much more danger of a relapse of violence. And it could put their life in danger as well. They
2: actually have programs where they can rehabilitate the perpetrators.
0: Yes. So that's exactly what I did. I did a lot of victim counseling and I had some success, but I wanted to see more success. So I thought, you know, that's what they call batterer. You know, it's a threatening name. I wish they would name it something different. But batterer intervention program is a perpetrator of domestic violence that's the rehabilitation program for them. That's based directly for them. Now, is do they have those throughout all the United States? Yeah. No, that's a great question. Every state. Yeah, the the domestic violence. movement has grown immensely a lot really in the last five or ten years a lot of your violence in the NFL with football players abusing their spouses there's been a lot more attention to domestic violence and with that said a lot of national grants have been given out in every state in the the United States has domestic violence batter intervention programs And I would even go on to say almost in every county, I don't want to speak for the whole U.S., but most of the United States has access to batter intervention programs nationally. There's a national hotline for batter intervention where you can research that. But every state does have programs in each county, kind of like what they have for people that uh, drive while they're drunk. Now, you know, there's counties that have accredited, licensed programs in every county to address better intervention to help the perpetrators because it's really an epidemic and there's more attention to it. And because there's more attention to it, you have police that are, are better trained to write the reports up properly. So you're seeing a lot more convictions, and a lot more attention to rehabilitation in the last five or 10 years than ever before. That's really good to know. And unfortunately, I was not aware of anything like that. So, So I really
2: appreciate you bringing that information. Now, what about like situations where it's say the perpetrator is in law enforcement? What does the victim do in a case like that? Because of course, there's a lot of major manipulation going on and nobody's going to believe you. I mean, it's like, it's gone from just a well, it's not small amount, but it's like it's magnified a whole lot more when it's the perpetrators in law enforcement.
0: Yeah. I mean- you know, when you look at law enforcement and you look at what they do for a living, a high stress job, like a, being a police officer or a law enforcer, and, you know, they, they don't get a lot of training in mental health, very little training, unfortunately. And with that said, a high stress job, the addiction numbers for law enforcement very high. People can get addicted to drugs and alcohol that are police officers. And I haven't seen the stats, but they're human like anybody else. They can get a domestic violence charge. I have worked with police officers that have been warned because of domestic violence and have gotten counseling voluntary. I haven't had anybody sent through the courts that was a police officer, but I have had officers that would come see me voluntarily who were being abusive to their wife or their girlfriend who would come talk to me about getting counseling for that. But yeah, it's no different than any other perpetrator I guess it would all matter if the police officer lived in the same county, the police officer knew other police officers.
2: I would think it would be more magnified simply because of the position that when somebody's in law enforcement, the position they hold. What can a victim do in a case
0: like that? Reaching out for help should be based and predicated upon safety at all times. As counselors working with anybody, I think safety should be first, no matter what the issue is. And with domestic violence... Safety is always first because we're literally could be saving that person's life. You know, somebody asked a question, well, how many times is too many for a violent episode? Well, one time can be too many. I had a man push a woman down a flight of stairs. He went to walk away. He claims she followed him. He turned around and he pushed her to get away from him. She flew down three flights of stairs, broke her neck. And ended up in the hospital for many months. And that man went to prison for eight years, left prison, and had to come see me for 26 weeks to work on domestic violence. So the question is how many times is too many? One time is too many. All it takes is one shove. All it takes is one violent episode, and that can literally kill somebody. So a victim, you know, to answer your question, going back to, What should a victim do if their spouse is a law enforcer? I would call if it's a local police officer, then you would call the county police. If it was a county police officer, then I would call the local police or even looking into not even calling the police at all and just calling the National Domestic Violence Hotline. There is a domestic hotline number. And those trained professionals can help the victim on what to do in those circumstances. And actually, any victim of domestic violence should always call the hotline, and those trained professionals will help them problem solve of what they should do or how to go to a domestic violence shelter to be safe from the perpetrator.
2: And so the domestic violence hotline, it can get them connected to their local agency?
0: Yes. They can call the national number or the state number. You can Google for your state if they don't want to do that. There's a National Domestic Violence Hotline number. When they call that, it's confidential. And that national worker, you're right, will link them to the local jurisdiction to help them look into a domestic violence shelter to where no one can know their whereabouts or their address so they can go to a safe place to get away from the abuser.
2: I just looked up the domestic hotline number. For those of you who are needing it, please take this number down. It's 1-800-799. 7233 That's 1-800-799-SAFE. If you go to the hotline.org, this will connect you right to it and they even have a live chat option. Or you can text somebody where you can text start S-T-A-R-T to 88788. So those are some information. Again, I'm going to give that number one more time. It's one 800 799 and then on the hotline.org, they have a chat option. And you can also text them and you text the word START, S T A R T, to the number 88788. Maybe somebody out there isn't a victim of domestic violence, but they probably know somebody or a pastor knows somebody that is a victim of domestic violence. And that's just an extra resource for them to have. My podcast is talking about the taboo topics, obviously. and. One of the things that areas I work in, I work with ministry and there's a side to ministry. Not every minister's home, thank goodness, but there are some out there where the minister of the home, and again, it's not always the man. I mean, a lot of times it is. It's not always the man, though. Sometimes it could be the woman who's the perpetrator. But particularly, I want to shift it over to churches where the where there is domestic violence in a home of a minister's home or a pastor's home. Let's go that direction.
0: Sure, absolutely. Well, I think what you said was good about it. Doesn't have to be a man. It can be a male or a female. I found that usually, if when it's a woman, she's had been a victim, acting out as a defense as a perpetrator. But there's a lot lot of different reasons why somebody could be abusive like Uh, let's say someone had a head injury and their brain chemicals aren't right and there's mental illness and maybe the woman is more violent verbally or physically but usually women towards men I think we should discuss this you know God made men and women differently meaning that you don't have men calling the domestic violence hotlines saying hey my wife has me trapped in the bedroom please help me I need someone to come help me but 99% of those calls you do have women saying, Hey, I'm trapped in my room. I need help because men are physically stronger than, you know, they're bigger, they're stronger. So your physical abuse side are more from the men, but women can definitely fall into the cycle where they can be verbally abusive or psychologically abusive. Because I think you're right, Denise, you make a good point. Not all domestic violence is physical. It can be economic. It can be sexual. It can be verbal and psychological.
2: And I appreciate you saying that about like the sexual part of it, because in some cases where maybe the woman or the man, you know, maybe they're not feeling very sexual right in that moment. And their partner... Their spouse is wanting to have relations with them, and then it gets into a, a guilt trip. I appreciate you saying that because if you are not comfortable, sex between a husband and wife should never be painful. For one thing, exactly, and and the two, it should be consensual. Yes, and again, this is not on anybody. Say, example: if it was oral sex, if if one partner is not okay with that, the other partner should not be forcing the one who's not okay to have oral sex. Just plain and simple.
0: That's right. The Bible talks about the husband and wife honoring each other and marriage is not ownership. Biblically, marriage is a covenant and honoring the covenant is always respecting the boundaries of each other because yes, there are two people coming together as a covenant, but they're two separate individuals that are their own people that have their own boundaries. Loving your spouse should be respecting their boundaries and being able to handle the word no because marriage is not ownership. It's a covenant and it's a biblical covenant. It's beautiful but it should be respected. Boundaries should always be respected and the word no should be honored and if there's a situation where one of the two spouses are withholding sex because they're holding a grudge well then that's where you want to get a professional therapist to work on the marital issues because you don't want to withhold sex for those reasons but if there is an issue then that's where you want to reach out and get help and get counseling. If there's not been domestic violence, it's okay to get counseling to work on those issues. And that's
2: a really good point. I appreciate you saying that. Earlier when I was asking about like within the church, when it's ministry wise. Yeah. Because there are people that are involved in ministry, they're involved in it, but they think they're the only ones that is dealing with this. They think they're the only ones like nobody else will know because my husband's a preacher. You're a preacher. Sure. Naturally, when we go out and about and do whatever, I call it the glass house because everybody's watching your life and everybody's trying to see, are you going to mess up? You know, I have such a burden for people in ministry who who do hurt that go through things. And I think the ones that really t- tugs at my heart is the ones where they're no longer in that relationship, but they came out of a relationship. And usually it's the women who's contacting me, but their spouse was a minister and everything looked perfect on the outside, but behind, behind closed doors, nobody knew about the emotional abuse or the sexual abuse or the physical abuse. I don't even know quite where to go with that. It's such a I mean, that is a taboo topic, and and I imagine it happens a
0: lot more than what meets the eye. Absolutely. You know, not every situation is 100% spiritual. There could be learned behaviors that are very maladaptive that are passed down. Maybe, maybe the perpetrator's father was abusive, and they are continuing abusive cycles, and they you know, generations of family history. You can have domestic violence respects no person. I've seen it with ministers. I've worked with, with, with ministers not of the UPC, but of denominations who were pastors who were perpetrators of domestic violence. And I've had to have some tough conversations on safety and violence. And I've had them actually go through domestic violence with me individually, where I'll give them a 12-week core. And you know, batter intervention program is an awesome program because it talks about let's say if it's for a male, because most of it is for males. Again, women are violent, but a lot of your offender programs, the more severe act come from men to women. Right. That's where the death rate and the violent rate is pretty high. It's men killing the women or you know, severely hurting them. But in working with them, it covers women's history. It talks about how far women have come historically, the right to vote. And it really just opens the door to what violence is. I mean, as a minister and a counselor, there were some things I didn't even realize, like here's an example. Yelling is a form of domestic violence. Well, I'm Italian, number one, and I'm not talking about like upstairs saying, hey, to your children downstairs, If somebody gets mad and they yell at someone, any act that causes someone to be afraid is a domestic violence act. So you're not talking about your regular
2: squabble that couples get into where they're yelling at each other. Not like that, but the one where one person is significantly afraid of the other when yelling takes place.
0: Any act that causes someone to feel fear and withdrawal is considered a domestic violent act. So if someone yells and they scare someone, that's a domestic violence act. If somebody takes their chest, the man and pumps his chest out and walks towards his wife and he does not lay a hand on her, they call that posturing where he walks toward her as though he's going to do something physical. That's a domestic violent act. So it's not just something physical, laying your hands on somebody. It could be posturing. It could be how that, you know, how that man looks at his wife. If he's making hand signals, like taking his hand to his throat or raising his fist towards his wife, all of those are a domestic violent act. And you're right. When it comes to abuse, abuse has to be a pattern of behaviors to call it abuse, but you don't have to have a pattern of domestic outburst to actually need rehabilitation. Because again, how many times is too many? If a man pushed his wife and she fell down, there is a need for that man to get some help to work on never doing that again. Because physical violence is one time is always too many. As far as perpetrators who reach out to
2: you. Yes. How often is that voluntarily? Like they realize I've got a problem. This is becoming a problem.
0: Yeah, a lot of perpetrators are narcissistic and they're very self-centered, meaning that unfortunately, unless the law steps in, the majority of domestic abusers do not seek help. So what you have is in these batter intervention programs, you have court ordered individuals who are sent by probation officers or the court, or if they're in jail, the aftercare program is to continue domestic violence. They are made to come to get help. And unfortunately, I've seen a very low success rate in the groups because a lot of these men have other charges and a lot of them don't take it real serious and they're just trying to check a checkbox to get through, to get off probation. I have seen some change. I have seen some great change though. I think it's like anything else. If someone's ready to change and they want to change, they can change. Biblically, we can do all things through Christ Jesus. I believe a perpetrator can change if he or she wants to, a lot of work. But most people that change and break the cycle of being a perpetrator, a lot of the time it's a voluntary where they come to you to work on themselves to get help. But I have seen court ordered people that are sincere change and do wonderful. But the majority though, it's a low success rate with court ordered individuals, unfortunately.
2: So the ones that are are determined to change, even if they are court ordered, they have a better success rate then. Yes
0: the ones that want to change and they really put themselves into it, they can. I have seen, you know, men come to me, work the program for 26 weeks, which is about six months and not have any violent episodes. And then I've seen them three or four or five years later and they're still doing well. So there are success stories out there when people just, They don't want to go to jail. They want to be better people, and they really apply themselves. They can change. And with the help of God and a good counselor, a good program, they can break the cycle and get healing.
2: Could church leadership recommend that, say, they have somebody in their church who is a perpetrator, a domestic violence perpetrator, could they recommend that? the member of their church go to one of these programs?
0: Absolutely. Especially with, I always think safety first when it comes to physical violence, but really any kind of violence where there's abuse of any kind and there's a pattern, let's say it's not physical, but there's a pattern of abuse, or there's a violent outburst where the woman or that victim could have gotten themselves hurt badly. Any of those cases, a pastor would always be do well to know the community resources You know, a good counselor that can help recommend good programs or the pastor themselves researching good, better intervention program. They're made to rehabilitate. They're very good and they can definitely help that perpetrator go on the right path. Because, again, it's a mistake if a victim has been threatened to be killed or there's been posturing. With a weapon, or if a man's grabbed the woman's throat, it's always a mis- or any kind of serious physical violence. It's always a mistake to give them marital counseling immediately. They should be able to go to batter intervention program first, and then with successful completion, then go get marital counseling. Because matter intervention program, they're successful if they're worked properly because you have the facilitator. I had to call the victims of the perpetrator and check on them to make sure they're safe because the program is all about keeping the victim safe. So a good facilitator will make that perpetrator sign a contract and a release of information to speak with the alleged victims. There were times where I made phone calls. Hey, how are you? And, I, and you have to call and make sure that's a safe place where they can talk. So, as if I'm trained to make sure I get phone numbers where they work at or places where I know they're not going to be home, where I can call them on their own and check on their safety. If the victim says, you know what, I've been safe physically, but my husband or my, maybe they're going through a divorce, my husband's driving by my house every day and stalking me. Well, then that perpetrator does not finish the program we extend the weeks until that man is ready to change program might go 35 weeks for someone if they're not ready to change we just add on weeks to it until they're ready well until they meet their contractual obligations to not do any kind of violent act what about like pastors who because i
2: would think that pastors had a are kind of like a you know like we as therapists we have a you know we are mandated reporters and wouldn't Wouldn't pastors be in that same considered mandated reporters as well?
0: Absolutely. If a person's a threat to being hurt you know, to themselves or someone else, or if that pastor believes they're in danger of any kind, absolutely he is. Let's say it's economic abuse that's ongoing. That might be different. You have an adult, so that pastor can, you know, it depends on what is causing that person to feel unsafe. Obviously, anything physical, you should report. Sexual, you should encourage that victim to call the domestic violence hotline. If it's sexual or physical and they feel like they're scared to go back home, that pastor, you're right, is a mandated reporter. He should help link that saint to a domestic violence hotline number to help that saint get linked to a a shelter where they can go for safety.
2: I think that's really important to address that because, again, back to the church that that I'm aware of where a couple of situations were in that church. I don't know if the leadership of that church even knew that they had to report that. Of course, this was several years ago. And I know times have changed since then, because why well, I, I think of years ago, I wasn't in church, but years ago, I saw this movie. It was called the burning bed. And it was about a woman who had been, and it was, it was a true story back in the i want to say the 70s and laws were so much different back then laws women weren't protected like they are now and but she had her last resort was she's she's going to escape or she's going to kill her husband and that's what ended up happening she killed him and you know we don't we don't want anybody to die through the process but we want people like you said the most important thing is to be safe
0: safety first absolutely at all times if a Pastors working with the saint, and the woman says, you know, my husband, he pointed a knife at me at dinner. You know, that's a situation where that pastor should be linking that woman to some domestic violence resources in the community and let the professionals help her get what she needs. Because, again, we can't afford to think we know what we're doing and that saint to be stabbed or murdered the next week. I get so frustrated and I realize
2: and this is more older generation of pastors. I hear this from, oh, we just need Jesus. Yeah, we do need Jesus, but you know what? We're in a so much different day and time than we was back in the seventies and eighties. We are in such crazier times, and it's probably going to get crazier before it's over with. As we wrap up, and I'm really glad you did come on this show on the podcast to talk about domestic violence i think it's an important topic it definitely needs to be addressed so i want you to talk to two different people the first one is the minister out there who may be struggling with domestic violence maybe he is dealing with domestic violence he's the perpetrator in this case and then the second person is someone who's trying to get out of a domestic violence situation
0: talk to both of those people i would say on both sides safety always first i would if i'm talking to a minister i would say it's so, it's hard for ministers and men and many times women to reach out and get help but it's okay to step out there and get help there are professionals can definitely help where it's confidential And these patterns can be changed. Again, one time is too many. And my advice to the minister would be don't wait until the law steps in and makes you get help. Because if there's a true domestic violence issue, then many times it will lead to legal issues to where you'd have to go get help and go through a 26 week program. But you don't have to wait that long. One time is too many. If there's issues in the marriage in which there's violent episodes, I would say, Work on the anger management with a professional. Reach out, get help. You can be helped. You can change. And many people struggle with these issues. And a lot of it really is anger management and working on not being aggressive with professionals. And God has given us the ministry of helps and counselors that are trained in these areas that as long as you want to change, you can and get the correct treatment plan to be on that right path to where you're no longer violent to maybe your wife or your children. Now is the time to reach out, don't be afraid. It's confidential and you can change. To the victim, I would say, know your domestic violence hotline. That number is there to call. If you feel like you're in danger, you're afraid to go home, your life's been threatened. If your throat has been grabbed, having your throat grabbed is not just a negative coping skill, that is posturing for possible murder death. And if you have gone through something of that nature or you've been threatened or you're being abused where you're afraid to go back home and you feel like you're trapped, call that domestic violence hotline. They will help you get to a shelter and help you get the resources you need. Your life matters to God and God wants you to be safe. And he wants you to be available to get healing. And because of that, you want to reach out to those resources because they are there.
2: Thank you, Tim. Again, that number is for the, the National Domestic Violence Hotline. It is 1-800-799-7233. That's one 800 safe They also have a text option where you can text the word START to the number 88788. And then on the hotline.org, which is their website, you can also chat with somebody, you know, to reach out to somebody to get help you need, or maybe you know somebody who is dealing with domestic violence. I really appreciate this conversation because it's one that needs to be addressed. And I imagine that it, this will be beneficial for many, many people to come.
0: Amen. Well, thank you Sister such a lead for your time. I think this is a great ministry and a great endeavor to help those in need. God bless you.
2: All right, everyone. If you enjoyed the podcast today, or if you know somebody who, who is going through this or struggling, please share this podcast with them. And until next time, have a blessed and wonderful day.
1: Thank you for listening to The Real Talk 238 Podcast for this week's episode. If you have enjoyed this episode of The Real Talk 238 Podcast, please subscribe so you will be notified when new episodes are released. If you would like to leave a comment or there is a topic you would like discussed on The Real Talk 238 Podcast, you can drop an email at therealtalk238 at gmail.com. You can also find The Real Talk 238 Podcast on Facebook, and Instagram listed as at the Real Talk 238. As a reminder, the Real Talk 238 podcast is not a substitute, nor does it replace therapy. Always seek the advice of your physician or a qualified licensed mental health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or mental health disorder. Until next time, have a blessed day.